Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winter Fame. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Pashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. The Entolamaginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Please be advised that today's podcast contains content that some listeners may find distressing. On today's episode, of the Indo Daily. Harold Shipman, Beverly Allett, Colin Norris, Victorino Chua, and now Lucy Letby, the serial killer health professionals who murdered their patients. The nurse Lucy Letby has been found guilty of murdering seven babies, making the 33-year-old the UK's worst child killer in modern times. We know Letby murdered babies. We know she tried to kill many more vulnerable newborns. But like those others, what we don't know is why. Well, there are a number of possible explanations for why Letby did what she did. Based on what we know about other serial murderers, particularly healthcare serial murderers. How did this young, intelligent woman with loving parents become a mass murderer of the innocent? In many ways, Letby has been a classic textbook healthcare serial murderer. She's ticking all the boxes for what you would expect. Craig Jackson is a professor of occupational health psychology and he joins me now to give his insights into the Letby case and many others. It is an impossible question, especially at this stage, and it might always remain an impossible question. But why did she do it? That's what, that's what I think we're all struggling with. Yeah. Well, there are a number of possible explanations for why Letby did what she did, based on what we know about other serial murderers, particularly healthcare-related serial murderers. And some theories have been put forward based on some of the circumstantial evidence in the case and based on some of her observable behaviours around the trial. Um, So what I can probably do, if that helps, is highlight a couple of theories that people have speculated at the moment. One may be that she was trying to gain the attention of either male colleagues that she was romantically keen on, 
or that she was trying to gain wider attention from colleagues within the unit where she worked. And indeed, I know the prosecution did put forward the idea that she was trying to get the attention of a male colleague that she seemed to be quite keen on. The issue about gaining attention from wider colleagues and staff within the unit um, is a very similar motive that Beverly Allett displayed um, in the early 90s, who was a, um, an English nurse who killed four children on the unit where she worked and attacked, we think, at least nine others. No matter how much you don't believe me, and I know you don't, I don't care. I can't bloody lie to you. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you for days on end while I get questioned. She was diagnosed with a condition at the time known as Munchausen's by proxy, whereby you injure other people and then you are the person who deals with those injuries or raises the awareness of the situation and you gain some satisfaction and recognition from that. We don't use the term Munchausen's proxy by more, but we, we tend to use the term factitious injury or factitious made-up injury in others. So it is possible that Letby was injuring these babies as a way to be the person on the scene to embed herself into the story, to make a fuss of their parents, so that she may be getting attention from colleagues, from the parents themselves, or indeed from particular individuals that she might have been romantically fixated upon. So that's one possible theory that she was doing it for attention and willing to harm and kill children to get that attention. Um, another possible theory is that um, she may have found working with this very vulnerable paediatric client group with very complex health needs too stressful to deal with. And injuring and attacking those babies in the way she did may be a way of her getting control over a patient group that she could never really control and cope with. Now, I mention this because there was a case of a Scottish nurse called Colin Norris who murdered, I think, four or five of his uh, elderly patients. And he'd admitted to colleagues earlier that he found elderly patients very annoying and very frustrating. A thoroughly evil and dangerous man. A killer who appeared to have no motive other than being irritated by the frail and elderly women. This man, Colin Norris, was stopped in his tracks after he killed four and attempted to kill another person. So there is some capacity that the healthcare serial killers may be doing it to get control in their workplace circumstances. And we do know that those staff who work in very difficult situations where they have very little control in other aspects of their jobs may try and find control in the one or two areas where they can exert it. So getting control over what she saw as a difficult group of, of patients may be another reason why, based on experience of other healthcare killers. I think one thing we can say based on other serial murderers is that it's highly unlikely that there would have been any sexual motivation for this. When we look at healthcare-related serial murderers, whether it's Allett, Norris, Letby, or uh, GPs and doctors, Harold Shipman being the most infamous, they very rarely, if ever, sexually interfere with their victims. And if we look at the largest 
group of, of serial murderers we have in the UK, uh, which we call sexual sadists, they're clearly motivated by a sadistic sexual desire that they act upon with their victims. We know that healthcare workers are not like that. They are killing for other reasons, clearly not sexually motivated, but maybe it's elements of power and control. Maybe it's element of getting attention from specific individuals or from her employers or from colleagues, or there could have been some other psychopathological reason that we don't yet know. There are remarkable similarities between this case and the Beverly Allett case. And and yet in the Beverly Allett case, and you mentioned possible um, psychological difficulties there, um, and yet there has been no effort. Of course, Lucy Letby uh, maintained her innocence. So there was no attempt to frame this in terms of uh, mental distress of any kind. Well, this is something quite interesting about healthcare serial murderers. And Victorina Chua is another one. He was responsible for the Stepping Hill murders in Stockport in 2011. And he was a male Filipino nurse who, like Hallett, was killing patients, mostly middle-aged or older patients, with insulin or with tampering with with air into their bloodstream. Uh, So male nurses also can do this as well. It's not just the preserve of the so-called angel of death and, and a female thing. But here's an important thing that we need to remember about healthcare-related serial murderers. Because they know what they are doing in terms of hunting their victims and which victims they attack, they are very careful that they attack victims who are closer to death than being alive, whose death would not be unexpected, and often those with complex health needs and in a particular setting such as a geriatric unit or a special care uh, neonatal unit where deaths of patients may not be as investigated as thoroughly as deaths of, let's say, healthy, middle-aged, younger patients. So they clearly gravitate towards those victims that they can kill relatively easily and whose deaths will be hidden by poor routine practice or or lack of decent pathological follow-up. Now, the way they often do this, of course, like Alit, like Letby, like Norris, like uh, Victorina Chua, is they will mess with insulin, they will insert air into the bloodstream, they will do other things to the bodies, that are, the, to the patients, which are initially hard to detect without a post-mortem investigation. And even in Letby's case, one of the reasons the trial took so long is because there was no real conclusive physical forensic evidence that could tie Letby to the murders. What they had to rely on essentially was circumstantial evidence that Letby was present in and around each of those children who were attacked. And by processes of elimination, other nurses weren't. I'll give you an example. That's how Victorina Chua was eventually caught. Before he was caught for several deaths at Stepping Hill Hospital, they'd arrested a young female nurse, Rebecca Layton, and she was charged with these murders. And it 
was only after she was in custody and another suspicious death occurred did the police realise it may not be her. So the evidence against Letby and Alit and Norris and Sharina is mostly circumstantial. So there's a difficulty in ascribing reliable forensic evidence to tie them to those attacks. But it's the amount of circumstantial evidence that, that adds up and gives overwhelming, convincing evidence. The reason why healthcare serial killers then rarely, if ever, admit that they did it or why they did it is because I am sure they believe that at some point down the line, somebody somewhere may question the evidence and there could be an appeal. And I think that has been the case in in Colin Norris, who was accused of, of, I think, five murders of older patients, that someone suggests there may be a mistake. There was no real forensic evidence to tie Norris to those murders. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time on several occasions. So I'm pretty sure that healthcare serial killers are willing to play the waiting game, hoping that at some point in the future, somebody may challenge the relatively weak circumstantial evidence. Remember with Harold Shipman, he, when he was charged, he wouldn't speak to the investigating team. He wouldn't even acknowledge some of the photographs of victims. And throughout his trial, he was belligerent and refused to take part. Even after he was convicted of around 50 murders initially, he still refused to take any responsibility. And he took his own life in hospital, never admitting what he did or why he did it. And I fully believe it's because they think there is a glimmer of an outside chance that this circumstantial evidence could be challenged one day and there could be an appeal. And Lucy Letby, you know, for, for observers watching, you know, she, she maintained her innocence. And yet she hid in her cell for the sentencing for many people, they would assume that someone who was innocent would be up in that dock, shaking their head, saying, no, you know, I want to protest. I want to maintain this. And yet it makes her look very guilty in the eyes of the, the normal population. Psychologically, what do you think was going on there? It's difficult, obviously, without a, a full uh, assessment of her personality and her mental state. But I think what we can say with some confidence is based on what we understand about her upbringing, her studies and her career to date, is that she was relatively emotionally immature. Um, it seems to be that she had a, a very close relationship with her parents. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, but there may have been aspects where she was overindulged, where she was infantilized at some time. And it could be, of course, that if you are overindulged and infantilized enough times, you don't make the sufficient landmark steps into being an adult. And that usually means making, uh, taking responsibility for mistakes you've made and putting your hands up. Um, so it could be that because of her relative immaturity and maybe other personality shortcomings, even disorders of her personality she could be very high in narcissism 
And what we know about those who've got very high levels of narcissism is they're not very good, again, at, at taking responsibility. They will blame anybody but themselves what they've done wrong. And they find it difficult to admit in front of other people where they've gone wrong. So staying in the cells and refusing to, to hear the sentencing and to face the music is something that you would expect someone with a disordered personality or a narcissistic personality to do. But I think it also overlaps with her emotional immaturity and lack of adult experience in the world. And she said, she, she, it's been pointed out that she appeared to cry for herself and her lost opportunities and even, and even her pets at one stage rather than be emotional when confronted with the facts around this case and notably the victims, of course. Well, failing to show emotion or crying for victims is a cardinal narcissistic symptom or behaviour. You cry for yourself, but, but not the people you've harmed. And we know from other mass murderers and serial murderers that to them, their victims, for want of a better phrase, are a canvas. They are a memo pad. And they don't really see them as humans with feelings or families who are grieving. And, and I think there's scope to bring in a particular theory about serial murder here that, that I think is relevant in Letby's case. It's a theory known as expressive transformative violence. What that essentially means is for a serial killer who may have low self-esteem, may have low position in life, little influence, little control, very little trappings of, of a successful individual, they may feel that harming, attacking and killing victims makes them become something more. They're becoming competent. They're becoming dangerous. They're becoming lethal. They're becoming someone to be reckoned with. And in the context of, of healthcare killers, they're also showing that perhaps they are smarter than their colleagues, that they are smarter than the system. Not only are they the ones who spot this child is sick, but they may be the ones who try and apply a, a remedy or a cure. They may be the ones who take a greater interest in that child's welfare or the relatives. So the serial murderer could be using their patience as, as, as a crude form of canvas to, to, to give a message. You think I'm a loser. You think I'm just a lowly, silly, immature girl. But actually, the things I do to these victims and the way I treat them and what I can do to them means that you actually need to think of me in more powerful and important terms. So that's one theory that might explain why she was doing. She was trying to become something more than she thought she was. She was trying to become accomplished, somebody to be reckoned with. And that, again, may explain why she doesn't want to appear, because as soon as she shows some emotion for the victims or she cries or makes a mistake, any mystique that she believes she may have built up about herself as being this dark angel or whatever dark personality she, she may want to have, that would be lost and ruined. And we, we, we find in the criminal justice system that for many serial offenders, the best thing they can do to maintain their cachet, 
to maintain their influence in the prison system, to maintain any power they have, is to say nothing. Because as soon as they admit to something or tell people what they've been wanting to hear for years, they lose any power or influence they may have. And they may not be able to bargain for better conditions or a better work detail or more visitation rights because they've given away the one thing that people really want to know. So she's going along with the serial offenders playbook here. Say nothing now because you have a lifetime in prison, possibly, that you need to think about. I mean, she will never be released in the absence of any successful appeal. I mean, I don't think there's any requirement of reform of character in, in, in this instance because there's nothing to reform for. But might someday she apologise for what she has done or, 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 or do you think she, she, she could honestly maintain 60 years of, of this power game dangling the possibility that she might tell people why and that this could somehow be her only card. I think you're right, because that's essentially the only currency she has. At the moment, her stock is relatively high, if you ex- if you excuse the expression, because we know that, that the police may be looking at where she has worked previously to see if there are any spikes in child injuries or, or fatalities that she could be tied to. This is fairly routine. It's been done with Shipman. Indeed, investigators went back to some hospitals where he worked in Leeds in his early career, where he also worked in paediatric units, trying to find if there are any spikes in in fatalities um, when he was there. That's what's going to happen clearly with Letby now. So she has cachet at the moment. We think she's bad now. In a year's time, we might think she's even worse if more crimes come to light. Greg, is there anything I should have asked that I haven't asked? Is there anything we should have talked about that we haven't? I think she's also incredibly manipulative. It should be noted that when colleagues raise concerns about her performance and her practice and her behaviours, One of the things that Letby eventually did was she met with her union and she took out a grievance against her employer, which made her very difficult to touch. Lucy Letby took out a grievance, with doctors forced to write this apology to her. Dear Lucy, we would like to apologise for any inappropriate comments that may have been made during this difficult period. We are very sorry for the stress and upset that you have experienced in the last year, Please be reassured that patient safety has been our absolute priority during this difficult time. She transformed herself into the victim of gossip and other people's ill will towards her, and she became the victim. And that afforded her a lot of protection to carry on working without being removed or suspended or or let go. And that clearly wasn't a coincidence. That was an active behaviour on her part to try and be perceived as an innocent individual, which allows her to carry on offending and attacking and killing. I think another thing that's worth mentioning is is the concept of cubing. One of the things we become more aware of with serial murderers who combine their offending with their jobs, and they, they tend to go on and be sometimes the most proficient and prolific serial murderers. They can go on for 10, 20, in some cases 30 years serial murdering because they combine their job with their offending seamlessly. And one of the ways they're able to do that, 
and I'm pretty sure that Letby was doing that, was cubing. They are able to function as many different kinds of people and keep those different aspects of their character separate. So Letby, she could be many things to many people, a reliable employee, a loving daughter, a fun friend, a confidant, a prolific murderer of children, a reliable sister or brother or family member. They're able to compartmentalize and cube these different aspects. So they appear quite normal, but they've also got this psycho, uh, psychopathology that allows them to kill one minute and then go for drinks with colleagues an hour later. And we're only really just learning how some serial murderers are able to do that whilst maintaining ordinary family and workplace relationships. She also leaked a bit. She, she, she experienced leakage. Something else we know serial murderers and mass murderers do is they sometimes leak. They can't keep it to themselves. They're so pleased and proud with what they're doing and feeling cleverer than, than, than everybody else that they give little clues. They may make notes or social media posts or say things that, that at the time seem a little bit odd, but only afterwards, in retrospect, they are almost like confessions. So Colin Norris, the murderer of, old, of older patients, um, he'd actually predicted that one of the patients on the ward would die that morning. And funnily enough, she did. And at the time, it seemed kind of strange. And only with retrospect do those comments come back to be quite strong circumstantial evidence. Letby was also engaging leakage. She was writing things down about how she hated herself, how she was evil. She would take an undue interest in the records and, and, and the details of the children she'd attacked and, and the family's well-being. So she was leaking and committing these these instances of leakage to post-it notes or to journals or to entries. But I think there's also been some evidence where she said strange things to people that at the time people weren't certain about, but only afterwards they looked kind of suspicious. So she was engaged in leakage. So in many ways, Letby has been a classic textbook healthcare serial murderer. She's ticking all the boxes for what you would expect. The final thing I would say is we've been here before. After Stepping Hill and after Beverly Allett, there were reviews, there were panels, and lessons would be learned. Lessons would be learned. And one of the things you often hear is that professional bodies will screen and vet people coming into their profession more carefully. So after Allett, young Potential student nurses who had a history of self-harming, severe mental health problems, even attempted suicides, it would be harder for them to get into nursing because they were seen as being the ones who more likely would be like Beverly Allen was. The same was true after Harold Shipman. The inquiry said that they would tighten up recruitment. But I can tell you as an occupational psychologist that pre-employment screening will not stop the next Lucy Letby. The next Lucy Letby, if they want to offend through their job, they will find a way of getting through such a pre-employment screening and they will get trained and they will get access to victims. So whatever lessons are learned, it's got to go beyond pre-employment screening because serial murderers are often, but not always, 
too wily to get caught out by that. Professor Craig Jackson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. Clips from UTV, BBC, Channel 4 and Sky. If you've been affected by today's episode, you can check out a list of helplines at independent.ie forward slash helplines.